This episode of the Now You Know podcast is sponsored by the Now You Know How to Get Recruited five-part class. Teaching players and families that the more money you pay does not mean the more opportunities you will get. Follow us on Instagram at MindsetPerformance2022 or myself on Twitter at Coach D. Jeffries. In this episode, we are talking to Adam Law, former BYU college baseball standout, professional baseball player, and current mental performance coach with the Los Angeles Dodgers. This is a great interview for players and parents. Enjoy. Welcome to the Now You Know Podcast with Dominic Jeffries and Nick Sassage. A non-traditional look at competitive youth, high school, and collegiate sports. Helping players and families with insights and information to help you on your athletic journey. Adam, tell us a little bit where, where you come from, man. Tell us a little bit about your story. Yeah, uh, grew up in Provo, down south a little bit, I think, from from where you guys are. Went to Provo High School, enjoyed baseball, basketball, and golf as a as a high school athlete. And then I walked on to BYU to play baseball. My father was the coach. Was an average high school player. I felt out of place even playing in college. My freshman year, I kind of felt like I was there because my dad was the coach. I had a brother on the team at the same time as well. Uh, served a two-year mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and then came back from my from that experience a little bit bigger, a little bit stronger. Played again, got my body back a little bit more, and then played summer ball and really, for the first time in my life, had played consistent baseball. Like I had mentioned earlier, I was always playing basketball and golf, and really baseball was my worst sport in high school. But finally, I was able to play every day that summer after my sophomore year of college something clicked for me. And I went back to BYU my junior year and had a a pretty big time year, I would say, and was fortunate to be drafted by the Dodgers in the 12th round. And then enjoyed a a seven-year minor league career with the Dodgers and the Mariners. Unfortunately, never debuted in the major leagues, just kicked it around in the minor leagues in AAA, AA for a while. And then came time to hang up the spikes officially. And then it's like, okay, now what? Uh, I think a lot of professional athletes, when whether you made millions of dollars or whether your, your story is kind of similar to mine, it's like, this was my identity. Decided to go down the mental performance route. I had a lot of awesome mental skills coaches, sports psychologists, mentors that I really looked up to and thought, you know what, this could be something that I think I would be good at and I think I would love to do. And then also relying on my experience as a professional athlete and kind of maybe empathizing at a different level than what I had as a player. And so went back to graduate school and and here I am today working with the Dodgers. Yeah, that's fantastic. And and I think, you know, one question I have for you is maybe talk about the the growth of your position now, right? Like, so when you go back to when you started, uh, you know, playing professionally, was this around? Like, what what did this position look like then? Maybe how how you know how does that position look now? Yeah, great question. Uh, when I was first drafted, we didn't have with the Dodgers, we didn't have a full time mental performance coach or anybody sports psychology related with you in the minor leagues. I don't know if they had anybody at the at the major league level. There were certainly consultants that would kind of make the rounds around major league organizations. Those dudes like uh, Doug Gardner, Ken Revisa, those types of guys kind of kicked off the 
the discipline in the early 2000s, 1990s ish, but really nobody full time. And then as I started to play 2014, 2015, the Dodgers hired uh, somebody who's actually my coworker now. Then it kind of like started to expand a little bit. And where with the Mariners, fortunately, this is probably one of the reasons, the main reason why I went down this path was the farm director or the the director of player development, Andy McKay, is a mental skills coach. He was he was the guy with the Colorado Rockies. The Mariners hired him in a completely different capacity, but he infused mental skill development in physical skill development for the Seattle Mariners. And I think we're seeing we're seeing the rewards now with the Mariners at the big league level, seeing all those guys come up because not only are they physically prepared to play, but they are also mentally prepared to play. And that's a byproduct of the curriculum that was established there. So as it stands now, I think 29 of the 30 major league teams have a mental skills department and that might be one person or you might like like the Tampa Bay Rays they've got like seven people full time on staff so i mean it's a huge huge difference from even 10 years ago and i'm fortunate to be a part of kind of the growth and we're seeing it really impact players and staff members in their ability to perform well on the field more now than ever we were talking a little earlier about professional athletes being a little more open with mental health and a little more open about being struggles. I have a client that I work with. He's a, he's a minor league baseball player. And he called me one day, he says, Hey Dom, he says, I'm really struggling. I'm like, what's going on? I'm not throwing strikes. I'm not around the zone. I'm, I'm struggling. And I, I, I don't know how to compete at this level. I'm, I'm, I'm having a really hard time keeping up with the other guys. I asked him that question. I said, so, well, first of all, in-house within your organization, do you have a a, a mental performance coach or a a, a psychologist, someone you can go talk to? He says, yeah, I think so, but I'm not sure who that is. And in addition to that, I'm a little nervous to go talk to that person because I don't want to be labeled within the organization someone who, in a sense, is having panic or anxiety attacks on the mound and can't win ball games for the organization. So he was a little nervous about that. In addition to he wasn't really sure who was there. He figured there was within the organization. But really putting that stamp on him as someone who is, if you will, labeled within the organization that... I can't go to my own people. I got to go to someone outside just for the fear of that. Are you seeing that in the big leagues or, or even in minor league baseball? Are, are, are guys still a little fearful of that? Absolutely. And I think they probably should be because I put myself in their shoes as a player. It's like, okay, does this mental performance coach, is he working for me or is he working for the organization? So I totally get where they're coming from. I experienced the same thing. Do I really want to tell this dude that, I'm having a hard time throwing the ball across the diamond. I'm I'm a little bit yippy. Or is that going to get back to the front office, to the decision makers? On the flip side, in my role, it's important first that you build a relationship with the player where he understands the parameters around confidentiality. And then also that I build a relationship with the front office of like, yo, you can ask me about player A, B, and C. I'm not going to tell you anything because of I'm bound by confidentiality. So it's a two-way street of educating the players, building a relationship strong enough that it can bear the weight of truth where they can trust full-heartedly that what they tell me is going to stay between us two. But if that relationship isn't there, I don't blame your client at all for seeking services outside of the organization. 
Yeah, he was really nervous of the fact that just and I I just sum it up by saying this: these are the guys who write the lineup. If they yeah. don't think they can trust me to go win games because they got to win games too, right? That's the deal. Then that was that was a real uh, contention point for him. So luckily, I was able to chat with him, and he did go to the organization. The organization was very accepting, and you know had all the right personnel to help him. And and in fact, he's still going, which is fantastic. But it's something that that I think a lot of players, even in high school, are worried about, even in college, are worried about. If it gets back to the guy who writes the lineup, if it gets back to the like, or you said the front office, what detriment is that to me, right? Especially if I'm trying to do this for a living or a college baseball player trying to get there. So when a scout says, "Hey, tell me about this guy," well, good player, you know, good tools, runs well, you know, hits for power, etc. But he's got a generalized anxiety disorder, and sometimes it gets a little tough for him. I can't speak for other organizations, obviously, because I'm not on on the inside there. But I'm grateful to to work with and for an organization where, for example, if we have a player that's not going to the weight room to get stronger, to maintain his body, or we have a, a player that's not going to the weight room to work on his hip mobility or his flexibility, the strength coaches are going to let him know like, dude, what's going on? Why aren't you coming into the weight room? That's going to get back to the front office as well. Like, yo, why isn't this player getting in and t- taking care of his body? Well, it's slowly shifting to that same way of like, hey, why isn't this player working with our mental performance staff? They're starting to see the value in it where it's like totally normal. It's not a knock on anybody. And we're being supported from the very top of the organization, which is just pretty cool. So it's like if somebody isn't working with one of us, it's like, what's wrong with this dude? He needs everybody needs to get their work in their mental in. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's I think it's a positive thing, right? To start to see that shift. So my next question or thought for you. I'm sure you could write a book on this, right? But if you could go back to high school, relay some of the experiences and tools you've learned to accomplish what you've accomplished, right? And and knowing now what you know, like what what would what would some of those things be, right? Like what are the some of the things that you really maybe the top of that list, right? Like what do I really wish when I was 17 I knew now? Such a good question. And to set the stage, so my father was a is a 10-year major league veteran. He's a major league all-star. My grandfather was an 18-year major league veteran, World Series winner, Cy Young Award winner. And then there was what I perceived to be poor little Adam, just trying to follow in his father and grandfather's footsteps. I think of like my high school days as a baseball player. And that's probably why I acted like I didn't care because if I failed, I didn't want other people to know that I actually cared so much. So I always felt some external pressure to perform, to follow in their footsteps, which in retrospect was unfortunate because it was pressure that I added by myself. Fortunately, in my house, my dad never forced us to do anything sport related or anything like that. Like I never had to go to the baseball field. He was super uh, encouraging and influential, but never forceful. So to answer your question, what I know now that I wish I would have known then was honestly just to go out and have fun. That the old spotlight effect that I think other people are watching we way more than they actually are. That they're worried about their own selves. I wish I would have known that as a high school player where I could have just had fun. People probably didn't even know that I was my pedigree. Um, some may have, but in retrospect, I just wish that I wouldn't have put on, put that pressure on myself to be somebody who I wasn't. And Unfortunately, that took me like three years into the pro game to finally 
get that monkey off my back and just be like, yo, I'm Adam Law. I'm going to go do my own thing. So that would be kind of the, at the top of the list of just going out and having fun. When you talk about getting that monkey off your back, like what, what, what do you mean? I mean, we know what you mean by that. You said just go out and have fun and be me, right? You also said the word spotlight. Spotlight is bright. When we talked to Walter last week, he talked about the spotlight. And if you're the shortstop and the balls hit you, you're the pitcher and, you know, it's the bottom of the set, whatever it is, that spotlight is so hot. And I think players get so worried about who, what, why around them that they lose that focus on really why they're there and lose that focus on themselves. Well, if I don't do this, my coach is going to be upset. Or if I don't do this, the older guys aren't going to respect me, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And they almost like toss their self-identity out, you know, out the window and try to become somebody else. So when you talk about, I had to get that monkey off my back, what do you mean by that? I was so concerned about becoming a major leaguer so that I could fulfill the prophecy of a third generation major leaguer. And that was the monkey that was on my back. And so when I would go 0 for 4, I would feel like crap because I'm not getting a step closer to the major leagues to do this as a third generation professional athlete. Instead of going out and playing for myself because I want to be a major leaguer or I want to be the best version of myself. Not I want to be a major leaguer because my father and grandfather were had I been able to reframe it that way, who knows if I would have made it to the to the big leagues? Probably not. The nights where I was 0 for 4 and performing poorly would have been a lot better. And my attitude and my experience during those lows would have been a lot better and healthy for me as a human being. Probably better for my relationships with my siblings and friends and fans. Like just a different perspective as opposed to doing it for somebody else. I would have been doing it for me earlier on. Again, until year three was like, okay, I met with a really awesome mental skills coach and he's the one that helped me outline and kind of reframe my view on why I want to make it to the major leagues. Would you say that that was kind of that turning point in your career mentally? Like, was that kind of the the, the shift, right? Like, I remember when we came up and, and we were able to see you play um, in Tacoma, right? And you you had a chart on all the pitchers that you'd seen, right? And you were explaining all that, right? Like, does all that kind of come from the same place of being mentally grounded? And, and was that kind of the shift in your career? Yes, I, w- I had kept the little notebook thing that I had showed you guys over the course of the seven years that I was playing. And so I always kind of had an edge in that I knew that I was physically probably an average player at the professional level, but I was looking for anything on the margins that I could get a leg up on my opponents. And I would say for 90% of professional baseball players, that's what it is. You got your 10% that are going to be better than everybody else, regardless of how much sleep they get, regardless of what they eat. If they work out, they're going to be major leaguers. The other 90% of us are just clawing for ways to get a leg up. Yeah, honestly, that was probably the turning point of I'm going to play for myself and I'm going to do me as opposed to trying to follow in this shadow that I had cast on myself. I'm sure other people talked about it and I'm sure you know, family gossip, it went on there. Hey, how's Adam doing? Is he going to be, but like, that's completely out of my control. And so once I was able to really hone in on what's in my control, can I commit to that day in and day out, whether I'm four for four or for four, that really helped me perform better and also 
live a fuller life experience off of the field too. So if I'm in a crowd right now and I'm watching you speak and I raise my hand and say, Adam, can you tell me what was in that book? How did that book operate? Because I, I know what you're talking about is as, as an adult, but a high school player may be like, well, what do you mean you carried a book? What do you mean you look for margins? What, what does that mean? Uh, so I had two books actually that are some of my go-to resources as interventions with players to show that like, this is something that can really help you. My first book was, it was a reflection exercise. I wrote down every single day, one thing that I did good, one thing that I did bad, and one thing that I'm, that I'm going to improve on the next day. I can go back to when I was on a 20-game hitting streak, hitting homers, not swinging, missing, and seeing what my thought processes were. And then I can also go back when I was going bad. I was 0 for 15, 0 for 20, what my thought processes were. And that probably helped me climb out of slumps a little bit faster than somebody who hadn't had that that record keeping, that reflection exercise. And so that was the first one. The second was I kept a book in the dugout and after every single at bat, I wrote down what, who the pitcher was, what pitches I saw, whether I swung at, swung at it, missed it, like kept that as my own record. We're going to have our scouting reports that have all the data that you could dream of. But sometimes what my eyes tell me is a little bit different than what's printed out on the PDF or what's on the iPad. And so I was kind of able to triangulate the two, my record, the, the scouting report with what I thought and formulate my plan that way. So I had a little bit more information than other people did because I had the information of my own two eyes. If you have 600 at-bats over the course of a season, plus a season before, you're, you're not going to be able to remember every single pitcher or what their pitch looked like. But just by simply filling out that little record kind of helped me, I think, get a leg up. It kept me involved in the game. Wasn't screwing around at the end of the dugout with my teammates, but there was probably that going on too. Uh, but it was something that kind of helped me win on the margins, I think. I love that because coming coming from a state like Utah, right? I don't think we're looked at as a baseball state. We're not Arizona. We're not California. We're not Texas, Florida. So what did, you know? What would you tell the Utah kid right now who's like, hey, like I want to go play in the SEC or I want to do this, I want to do that. Where, where should that kid start with his process? Like he's a sophomore in high school, average high school player. Where does he do? Where does he go? I wish I had this answer when I was a sophomore in high school, but this is a large part of what I do as a mental performance coach of we have guys that are in double A and they want to make it to the big leagues. Same same kind of framework as your question. We have a sophomore in high school in Utah, and he wants to go play at LSU. Okay, cool. Let's put down. Let's write down LSU on a piece of paper. That's where you want to go, right? That's the main goal. That's where you're going to put all of your all of your resources, all of your your time, energy to go to LSU. Awesome. Now let's backtrack from there. What's it going to take for you to go to LSU? List down all the things. You got to probably have grades. You're gonna to have to hit a certain amount of homers or your, your exit velocity, what is it going to do? What do you need to do to get there? And you're going to come up with this long stairway list. Awesome. That's now your process. So example, if you need to have a 105 exit velocity, let's say, what's your exit velo right now? It's 95. Okay. How are you going to get to 105? Probably some swing mechanics, but more than likely your body. So that's going to be nutrition and the weight room all right, cool. What's my nutrition plan? And what is my, my strength plan? That's going to be my process for tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And so it's going to be kind of a spider web out from your end goal, which really breaks it down into digestible 
realistic steps for you to get there. The best performers in the world that I've worked with, they embrace the boredom of consistency. And it's going to get old as a skinny high school kid pounding 4,000 calories if that's part of your process. But if you really want to get to where you want to get to, that's part of it. And you're going to have to embrace that boredom of doing the things that you probably don't want to do and they're not that fun, but that's what it's going to take. So that process, that list, that can be really overwhelming, right? For the the kid who say wants to play high level and he's 5'10", 145 pounds, right? It's kind of the, a lot is against him at that time. We create that process list. We we, we, we make it tangible, we make it visible, we make it so we can see it and invest in it on a daily basis. But what's the process for him engaging in it? Like I find a lot of athletes, especially athletes who want to play at a high level, I'm not sure they know the barriers. I'm not sure they know really what it takes. You know, we've talked about this, and I don't want to get into too deep. We've talked about it on past podcasts about the average player hashtagging LSU or whatever. The reality is, that's going to be a monumental task to make that happen. And in fact, genetically, you just might not be prone to ever let it happen, right? But when we see these lists, when we see these tasks, they can be so overwhelming to to any athlete, rather it's an elite level athlete or a high school athlete. What's the idea? How do we approach that? I get it. We see it. We break it down. But what's the mental performance? What's the What's the trigger that says I must engage in this daily if indeed I want a positive outcome? Honestly, I would argue that breaking it down into the simple digestible tasks makes it easy because now when I go to bed as a high school sophomore and I wake up at five in the morning to eat a big breakfast and go to the weight room, that's what I need to do that day. I'm not trying to make the LSU club tomorrow. Really, that's what the process is. And if you're able to fully trust that process that will eventually lead to the result, that's where you make your money. To the point of 5'10", 140 pounds, I also think you need to be realistic about what your end goal is. Now, I'm by no means am I saying that you need to sell yourself short because the best in the world, if they thought that, if they didn't think that they could be an MVP caliber player, they, they wouldn't be. Like Those dudes are a little bit off their rocker for lack of a better term. Like those guys think differently and because they thought differently, they were able to be who they are. So I'm not trying to minimize anybody's dreams or goals, but it's also important to be realistic about the outcome or, or what might happen. So setting an, a realistic outcome goal, but then breaking it down in the process, I think is digestible and is doable. And it's not overwhelming because it's what I need to do tomorrow. And then you dominate that. What do I need to do the next day? And the next day. And if you stack those small wins over the course of two or three years, you get yourself a chance to to obtain whatever you're you're trying to you're trying to obtain. Yeah, and I think that's that's where you said something uh, a few minutes back that I think kids really struggle with, and it's embracing the routine, embracing the boredom, right? Because to be a great baseball player, you're doing so many of the same things every single day. You're you, right, and so you know, is is that something you see even at the highest level? Maybe obviously not with the top performers, but is that still a struggle for some guys, even even when they're getting paid? Absolutely. And I would even say it is a, a challenge with the with the top performers, even dudes that are making $30 million a year. It's still hard to show up to the ballpark if you're not playing well, or if you've got stuff going on at home. But guess what? They show up. 
because that's what that's what you have to do to be elite. Again, they they embrace the boredom of consistency when they're when they're struggling. They just fight to get through the next day or the next drill or the next swing. And after they do that, okay, what's next? We see it a lot in spring training when guys, they just want to get out, have the season start. Well, we have to have a a team fundamental uh, defensive play that we're working on. And those are the worst, but you got to do it. And so you do it. And then you figure out what the next thing on the schedule is and the next thing. And really those guys are just so good at compartmentalizing what's going on off the field what do they need to do on the field? I read a story of a draw a line in the stand in the sand. The dude, he can't walk. And so he's army crawling and he just drew a line in the sand and he army crawled past it and drew a line in the sand and army and army crawled past it. Like that's the process right there and getting through just the mundane, the boredom of what it takes to be really good, especially in baseball when we're playing 162 games in 180 days. It's what it takes. I've had this conversation with so many people. They'll ask, well, how does someone make it to professional sports? You know, to play middle linebacker in the NFL, you got to be a little crazy, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you do. You look at some of these guys who aren't the prototypical, you know, if you talk baseball, 6'3", 220 pounds, they're those undersized guys. They got, they're different. Something's going on. They're, they're a different, they have a different process. They have a different mentality. You know, I look back of, when, I mean, it was probably in my 20s, you know, like uh, Dustin Pedroia. That guy physically, right, maybe doesn't fit the mold, but he was phenomenal, right? He, he, was, he, was, he, he did what he had to do. Undersized, Altuve. Like, how, how does that guy, how, how does he do it, right? Um, and and I, I think I, I like what you said about don't sell yourself short, but don't think for a minute if maybe you're not that prototypical or, you know, classic professional style athlete body genetically prone things like that that you don't have to be a little different or do a little more i'm going to tell you what it's a lot harder for dustin pedroia than it was for Derek jeter that's just the reality of it do you see that in the minor leagues do you see guys that get there and it's too much right it's just that they can't get over that hump maybe they don't fit the proto- prototypical uh model of of what's supposed to be there and when those guys hit that wall from your your job what you do cuz i know the organizations looking on you saying hey we got 5 million dollars mm-hmm. wrapped up in this guy you better figure him out right what h- how do you deal with that what's your process yeah so you're you're spot on it is it's easier for some guys it's easier for the first round and second round picks who get all the bonus money than it is for an 18th rounder that signed as a, as a college senior and he got 10,000 bucks or whatever. At the same time, I don't want to discount the work that the top, the top round picks, the, the show horsemen who are just, they have the physique, they've got, they've got all the tools. Like I don't want to discount the work that they've put in because certainly they've put in the work, but I also understand that it's oftentimes an underdog story for, for the the smaller dudes, the guys that that didn't get the first round money or whatever, and so when if for, for to your example, if a player is just like, dude, I don't, I don't know what's going on, I don't fit in here, I'm sick of showing up, I'm not playing every day, which is kind of a big thing in baseball. You want to be playing every day in the lineup. Really, it goes back to two things: is why are you playing? And when you signed up to play, you also signed up for all this crappy stuff that's going to happen. And so then we look at okay. Why are you playing? What do you value? Most of the time it's, hey, I, I love, I, I'm playing baseball because I love to play or I'm playing baseball to make a lot of money and support my family. All right, cool. We, ha- we have that established. 
Now, what's in your control that you can have an impact on, on tomorrow? Sometimes that's a player. It's a conversation with the manager of going in and having a tough conversation. Hey, why am I not playing every day? What can I do to play every day? Or it's, you know why you're not playing every day? Well, now you need to go out and challenge yourself in the batting cage. So it's really trying to get out of the internal thoughts of playing GM in, in our mind, which is what we, kind of a common phrase that we use, getting to an external stimulus of what can you do right now that will that will better your situation that's within your control. So really that's what it is, is defining why they play and then taking action steps that are within their control to better their situation. In your position now, right? Like what what does your day-to-day look like? Are you working with all levels? Are you just with the big league club? Maybe, you know, walk us through a little bit of of what that looks like as a as a coach at that level, mental performance coach at that level. Yeah. So I'm only in the minor leagues uh, at the moment. So we have on our team, we have four mental skills practitioners. We have one gentleman who's with the major league team all 162 games of the year. And then we have three of us who are in the minor leagues. Day-to-day is so different because we travel and we're with, we have five minor league teams. And so we kind of divide and conquer. So for example, I'm here in Arizona with our minor league team. I'll get to the ballpark around six o'clock in the morning. They're playing morning games in this league right now. So work out, hang out, players show up. I try to maximize my touch points. So I like to call it a clubhouse crawl. I'm going in the clubhouse, just kind of getting a vibe on on what's going on, how the boys are feeling, and just making myself available should any of them want to talk in in kind of a one-on-one setting. And again, it's a it's an informal interaction because that's just the nature of professional sport is having guys come into your office. It will happen, but the majority is just informal interactions. Guys want to talk, we'll go on a walk and talk as we call it. We'll walk around the stadium. We'll go out to lunch. We'll go out to dinner. So just maximizing touch points that can be in the clubhouse that's on the field during batting practice. Because I'm a a baseball guy, I hit fungos. I throw batting practice. So like I'm just around to help the guys feel comfortable. Uh, We have team team workshops and team education seminars. So we'll have the groups of pitchers come in and we'll, we'll share a mental skill or go through a meditation those types of things, along with hitters, catchers, our players rehabbing. So maximizing touch points individually and then as groups as well. And then when we go out on the road and, and meet up with with our other teams, our AAA, AA, high A, and low A clubs, kind of the same type of situation, except just pushed a little bit later in the day because they're playing night games. Yeah, that's kind of what it, that's kind of what it looks like really informal and and just keeping a, a good vibe check on the guys. Certainly we have our players that meet that we meet with every week on kind of a systematic basis. By being present for those players on a regular basis, are you finding that it's easier to create that bond? It's easier to create that trust. And I say that because, for example, a high school coach may only really have access to his players for a limited amount of time. Right. They don't yeah. have the ability to show up at 6 a.m. and hang out and work out and go to BP and da-da-da and then the game's at three and we can talk after the game, et cetera, whatever it is. 
how can a high school coach, how can how can a youth coach get involved with a player at that level? And meaning maybe it's not that extensive, but the reality is I see high school teams all the time who have culture issues or there's individuals within that team who are obviously really struggling. And I don't think the way that model set up allows for those coaches to be as good as mentors as they could be just simply based off time. So if I'm a high school coach and I got three guys, I know they're struggling and obviously my high school is not going to bring in a mental performance coach, but I need to get out. I need to hear these kids. I need to talk to these kids. What, what, what do you recommend for a high school coach? What's the best way to approach that? Yeah, that is, that is hard, especially as a high school coach. I know you're not getting paid. You're probably losing money being a high school coach. Uh, you're probably teaching, You've got, you've got a family, like the time commitment that high school coaches are involved in is like mad respect. Like I, I tip my cap to you. So again, the relationship piece is huge. If a kid doesn't think you care about them, they're not going to care about what you tell them. So I think there are ways to get creative where you can maximize your time. And a couple of things that initially come to mind is environmental design. How, like what posters are you having in the clubhouse or the locker room? What uh, text messages are you sending out? Maybe taking a video of a message that you want to send to the players on about team culture that you can kind of blast out to your entire high school organization. And so you can kind of scale what that might look like on a, on a one-on-one basis to just let the players know that you care about them. And I think that it will take some time on the front end to organize that phone numbers, emails, team snap, whatever medium you use to deliver information. But I do think that you can create an environment where you are getting touches with players without being there one-on-one. I just think of how Google has created what their environment looks like at Google headquarters. So much of human behavior is shaped based on what's around us And we can manipulate that as a high school baseball coach or as a mental performance coach that shapes behavior simply from the environment that you create. So definitely creative ways to do so. Again, posters, paintings, like team mottos, text messages, those types of things can scale out those interactions. Let me ask you the million dollar question now. How can parents of youth athletes, youth youth players, what, what can they do as a parent now that that will help support and foster a good relationship with their player, right? Because we see so much of the opposite, like just craziness sometimes. How can that parent who does get those touch points still have that, be that parent and that supporter, but also help guide that player a little bit? Wow. That's a really good question. And I think it's a something that needs to be talked about more. And I appreciate you guys for providing this platform on your podcast. I would imagine that's a question that you ask other guests as well. So props to you guys for bringing this out and starting the conversation. A couple of things come to my mind. First, let your kid play and let the coaches coach. Youth coaches, they're so worried about what the parent's going to say. The kid's worried about what their parents are going to say. And that puts the kid in a weird position of, do I listen to the coach? Do I listen to my parent? I've gone to travel teams, the kid strikes out, and immediately he's looking over to see his dad's response. That totally takes the fun out of the game. So first would be let your let your kid play and let the coaches coach. The second would be praise effort instead of praising results. If you want your kid to enjoy playing, 
and he goes 0 for 4, didn't get a hit. Man, you ran the bases so hard today. I'm so proud of you. Not even mentioning the, the strikeout because that frames the failure in a way that like he can, he can actually learn from that as opposed to I didn't get a hit. So praising effort over failure is huge. And then the third piece of what parents can do is read the book by Carol Dweck called Mindset. And there's one chapter, I think it's, I don't know, chapter 19, something like that, where it talks about helping to foster a growth mindset for your child and what you can do as a parent to help them do that. It's framing what failure looks like. It's helping them understand that they can learn from their failure as opposed to feel threatened by it. So that would be the third thing is re- read that chapter by by Carol Dweck. There's a quote out there that says, you can be a coach, you can be an umpire, and you can be a parent, but you can't be all three. I love that you just said that because one of our major goals is in the podcast, what we talked about, is to get that information to parents. Just be a parent. Just support them. And it's the mindset of a player. And I can go from my mindset to players that I that I work with, or rather my mindset and just in my daily job. If I feel something's personal, if I feel attacked, if I feel I'm not performing, if I rather I did or not, I'm going to build walls. I'm going to shut down. I, I hear as jokes all the time at the ballpark. Oh, this is going to be a tough ride home for Johnny today. Oh, mm-hmm. God, I don't want to get in the car with my husband and wife today. It's, it's going to that's a problem. That's a problem. We we've put it we've put in place in in our family, and I'm not saying we're better than anyone else. But you have five minutes. That five minutes can be good. That five minutes can be bad. Whatever it is, you got five minutes. And when that five minutes hits, we're not going to talk about it anymore. And we've put a really strong focus on the idea of, okay, you went one for three with a double. You didn't strike out twice. You went one for three with a double. That's different. It's the same thing, right? But the way it's said, the way it's perceived, the way it's approached, it's that it's that positive mindset, that plus you did good today, knowing that, as you know better than anyone in baseball, you're not expected to do good, right? That's the reality. The reality is you're expected to not do great today. And in fact, you banged a double off the wall, and that's amazing. So I, I love that you said that, and I, I love that that idea where parents have tools to grasp on because sometimes you get in – in the car and the kid's upset and dad's upset and the coach yelled at the players and there's so much chaos, there's so much stimulus going on that no one knows how to make any sense out of it at all. But if parents can just keep a common idea, we're going to get in the car, we can talk about the game, we're going to talk positively, right? If you got to air your air your grievances out, air them out, fair enough. It's not going to be personal. We're not going to point fingers. We're going to look at it simply as what it was, a game. And I think that changes the the approach of, of parents, because it's almost like it's a it's it's a joke sometimes at the ballpark. They're just like, "Oh, this ride home is going to be terrible," and they laugh about it. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure why that's laughable. Maybe that's just me. But gosh, man, you've got young minds. You've got these people that are trying to develop not to be major league baseball players, to simply be productive citizens in the society. And if you're beating them down like a hammer and a nail, I think there's damage being done there. And 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 I want to thank you for saying that because that that's a huge bridge that I'm personally trying to build that let's not forget baseball is a game. Are you going to get upset over checkers? Are you going to get upset over monopoly? Are you going to get upset over over Mario brothers? Same thing. It's a game. (laughs) 
right? So is, is it possible for, for us to swing that pendulum to, to really get that education to parents? And what do you think it's going to take to make that happen? Knowing not everyone's going to do it. And that's fine. Once again, I'm not trying to police it, but how do we get parents to buy into this? Like, Hey, baseball is not life. I hate that shirt that says baseball is life. Mm-hmm. Baseball is a piece of life. How do we get that across? Really good question. And I think we could probably make a lot of money if we are able to figure this one out. With you sharing what you just said about, I love the five minute rule. That's awesome. Yeah, we're going to talk about it. Boom, that's it. We're, it's over with. It reminds me of a story that a colleague told me, uh, also a mental performance coach uh, in the major leagues with a different team. And he said that he had a dad call him and say, hey, I've got my 12-year-old son who's really, really struggling, struggling at the play. He doesn't look like he's having fun. And I just don't know what's going on with him. Can, can you meet with him? And my friend said, yeah, of course, bring him on by. So the father brought his son to the office and the father is explaining to my friend all the problems that the, that the kid has that he's going through, can't hit the ball, striking out, he's crying. My friend says, okay, that's, that's awesome. Uh, why, like anything else that you want to tell me? And the dad goes, yeah, I'm just here because I love my son. And now all of a sudden the kid started crying and my friend is like, wait, what? What? Why are you crying now? And the son and the son said, I didn't know that my dad loved me. And my buddy said, well, I think my work here is done. Uh, you guys can go back. And if you have any other problems or challenges, be sure to reach out. And so sometimes the parents and, and you guys know probably more than I do, the parents want it more than the kid to the point that the kid doesn't even know that their parents love them. That doesn't answer the question of how can we scale this type of be- parent behavior that is supportive and growth-minded with their players. But I think we can do our own part as parents, as coaches to embody what really baseball is all about. And you said it's a piece of life. It's not life. It's a piece of life. It shapes behavior. It creates men. It creates better leaders, better husbands. And if we can frame it as such, I think parents and others will, will catch on. But that story, again, just like that, that had a profound impact on me. I don't have a, any children yet, but yeah, don't lose sight of our love for our kids and that baseball is just a piece of life and then embodying that for hopefully others to see in and catch on as well. It's such a great learning, like baseball, in my opinion, and we could be biased because we're all baseball guys, but I think it's like one of the best life lesson games that you could possibly play, right? Like there's, there's failure, there's bad hops, right? Things in life come at us that we don't expect. Um, and you can take so much from that. So it's like, how are you framing that, you know, in, in your everyday life to raise a kid, right? It's such a great, great lesson. It's such a great tool to use to teach life. And I think, you know, not to get too philosophical here, but I just don't think that's focused on enough. And, and we're so focused on the tangibles, stats, uh, trophies, championships, Right. But at the end of the day, how many guys end up where you are? Not a lot. Right. We end up interviewing for jobs, becoming teachers, becoming lawyers, becoming salespeople, you know, opening our own businesses. Like that's what it comes down to. And so I loved everything that you just said there is like, it's just, it's just a piece of the puzzle. Right. And then, and that's, that's it. And we can, and we can use it as a tool. If you're good enough to go make money doing it, more power to you. But like, let's, let's reframe it in a realistic way. To, to that point as well, you made me think about the parallels of baseball and life. 
and how often baseball games are won. The statistics that most people know are influenced by uncontrollable factors. You may go four for four and break your bat four times on bloop singles. And at the end of the day, you are feeling like a million bucks because you were four for four, but you didn't hit a ball over 70 miles an hour off the bat. Or maybe it was, yeah, you mixed in a swinging bunt in there. Well, you might have a teammate that hit four piss rockets at 105 miles an hour, one, two, three, four, with nothing to show. But from a analytical standpoint, the dude that hit the, the four missiles, he completely destroyed the guy that got four hits who hit the ball weekly. And so being able to evaluate really what's in your control and from a baseball standpoint, that is, did you swing at a good pitch and how hard did you hit it? You can't control really the direction to to where you're hitting the ball. And so same thing in life. You may win, you may lose, but are you evaluating what's in your control? Doing so is a really healthy way that shapes behavior and it shapes the way that we view events that that occur to us or that we incur on others is was it in our control and how well did we do that did we execute it i'm going to put you on the line for one more question adam then we'll let you go yeah give us a few sentences of information for the player who is trying to get his mind right who is going to listen to this or the parent who's going to listen to this and somebody is struggling a comprehensive if you will wrapped up in a nutshell information shot that they can put in their back pocket and they can pull out when they need it, a tool. Wow. I got a lot going on in my head, but to synthesize it, this is a really good exercise. I'm happy you asked me this. What you are experiencing to a, a high school player, who, who's, whoever is listening to this, whether you're a parent, player, you're a big leaguer, what you're experiencing, the best in the world are also experiencing. But what they do is they choose to take action despite uncomfortable thoughts and feelings. So you may think that your coach hates you and that you're going to strike out or you can't throw a strike. Well, guess what? Big leaguers are thinking the exact same thing. But what they're doing right now is they're acknowledging that they're thinking that and they're going out and giving it their best despite having those thoughts that are clouding their mind. So you can take action in the presence of uncomfortable thoughts and uncomfortable feelings. And it's it's hard to do because we get tied up in in the voice that's pestering us inside of our head. But we have no we have little control over the thoughts that pop up into our head. We have complete control over how we choose to take action and where we choose to direct our focus and attention. So what you're going through is completely normal. What you're thinking and feeling is is normal but you can choose to take action in the presence of, of those uncomfortable thoughts and feelings. It's awesome, man. That's perfect. And that's exactly what I was looking for. We talked to a, a mental performance coach, Riley Jensen, a few podcasts ago. Oh yeah. And he said, a plus R equals O action plus response equals outcome. And really easier said than done kind of as you said it, but really that's a pretty straightforward equation. The way you perceive something, the way you engage with something, that that intrusive thought process, who it'll never leave you alone, right? It's just it's going to be there in one way or another. But the way we respond to that, that talk, that person, whatever it is, is really going to direct us in the outcome of good or bad. 
I mean, mm-hmm. it's really a straightforward equation to me, and, I, and I've been using that with a bunch of my clients just in, in everyday mental health practice as well as with athletes. A plus R equals O. Action plus response will equal outcome. And so I really appreciate that, man. And and uh, and Adam, where, where can the listeners find you? Twitter, Instagram, like if they want to access you, if they want to follow you, where, where, where can they find you? Twitter and Instagram, my handle is at AdamLaw217. My bootleg website is mojolab.com. And then feel free to email me, adam at mojolab.com or slide into my DMs. I'm an open book. I feel strongly about giving back and answering any questions that anybody may have. So I make it a priority to spend some time of when people reach out. So yeah, that's, that's where, where folks can find me. What is Mojo Lab? So Mojo Lab is my consulting practice. So along with my full-time gig with the Dodgers, I consult with various high performers in the professional ranks and the college ranks, and then in the youth ranks as well and, and parents. So I got a high school kid. I got a junior high kid. I've got a kid in college, whatever it may be, they can access you. Yeah, hundred percent. We, I work with probably eighteen individual or yeah, eighteen twenty individual clients, and and we've got a battle rhythm where we meet once per week and send in texts, and I have an app that we kind of keep keep track of of where guys are at and and girls are at, and uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a whole thing. It's been it's been really rewarding. Give me that website again. MojoLab.com mojolab.com yeah okay man i appreciate it nick you got anything no we just we appreciate it like uh i did slide into adam's dms and he did respond right so so this is real life proof we have met before but i want to thank you for your time i thought this was a, a great conversation your ability to be accessible is is huge to i think changing the how we think about mental health and our thought process in sports um so i appreciate that and you know, it's just good to know you're doing so well. So thanks for, thanks for hopping on with us. And, you know, hopefully we can do this again. I appreciate it. And I understand that there's a lot of people that you can reach out to, to jump on your podcast. So the fact that you would reach out to me and go out of your way to find me on Instagram and, and send me a message really means a lot. And then taking an hour plus of your day to, to chop it up with me is really cool. So I, I too also appreciate it. Represent the 801, man. The 801. <laughs> you know it. <laughs> All right, Adam. Thanks, bud. We're going to talk again. I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll send some stuff here in your way. But I'd like to keep an open line of communication. And uh, like I said, just just keep working through things. And, and obviously, we're always available. And thank you for being available as well. Heck yeah. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you. All right, man. Enjoy the rest of your day. We'll talk soon. Okay. You right. too. Thanks, man. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Now You Know podcast. Go ahead and follow us and you will be notified each week of our new episode. You can listen to past episodes anytime on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, or you can visit our website at mindsetperformance.mykajabi.com. There you can find our masterclass on Now You Know How to Get Recruited to answer any questions you may have on the collegiate recruiting process, as well as information on how to work with us directly. Have a great day, and I hope you join us for future episodes.